Okay. Now, the 10 people that you see on the screen are just regular people. They're not preachers. They're not theologians. They're not professional Christians like me. Okay. They're normal folks that go to school and they have jobs out in the marketplace and they, they're moms and dads and their grandchildren. And what we've invited them to do is to take five minutes and to share with you something that God has placed on their heart. Now, some of them are going to be sharing testimonies. They're going to tell you a little bit about their story. And here's what I love. I've heard all of their talks already. And uh, so many of them are real. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a church before and it just feels like the person on stage, which is usually me, by the way, that's okay. No harm, no offense taken. Okay. Um, you're just like, I don't know. Is that a real person? He seems kind of fake. Are they being honest? These guys are going to be honest. You're going to hear stuff about them. And you're like, whoo, I don't know if I would say that if I had a microphone in my hand. But what I love about the honesty and transparency of their testimonies is that it, it reinforces the truth that we tell you guys all the time. This is a place where you can take the mask off. Church is a place where you can be you and you can be loved anyway, where you're surrounded by people who want to help you see, who help see you become the person that God created you to be. Some of them are going to do a little more um, typical Bible study or sermon, um, but no matter what, it's going to be amazing. So here's what I want from you. You're going to help us make it an amazing experience for them. Okay. You're going to cheer them on like Lady Gaga just walked on stage, all right? Like this is gonna be huge. You want them to feel like they are loved and welcomed and appreciated. When they make a joke, oh, you guys, it is the funniest joke you ever did here. Like this is Netflix special kind of level of humor, okay? When they make a good point, it's the wisest thing you've ever heard. You're gonna say amen and yeah, that's right and retweet or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. You're gonna really make them feel like they're doing an incredible job and here's why because they are going to do an incredible job. And so we want this to be an atmosphere of welcoming and supportiveness, and we can do that together. So let me just briefly introduce you to the Five for Five speakers. They're going to come on stage one right after another. So I won't be in between them or anything like that. So each time they walk on stage, I want you to make a lot of noise and make them feel welcome. So first up, we're going to have Miss Cassie Palacios. We're going to have Miss Janelle Hartung, yeah. DJ Lodovica, Kome yeah. Alori, and David Wimbush. Cassandra, you're batting lead off, girl. Make her feel welcome as she comes to the stage. Have you ever been jealous? Have you ever resented someone for having things you don't? How about romantically? Have you ever felt your relationship was threatened by someone else? Jealousy is usually considered toxic, but did you know in Exodus, it says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now, jealousy in today's culture means feeling resentments uh, against someone because of that person's success and advantages. Romantically, it means there is a threat and you, you must protect your loved one to preserve your relationship. Now, growing up, I was never the jealous type because I thought that if you were, you were toxic. But the Bible says that God is jealous. He is jealous for you and for me. I view jealousy through our culture's eyes and thought that this could never be viewed as a good thing. So why would God be jealous for me? Doesn't he love me in a healthy way? 
Now there's this song called How He Loves. The first verse goes, he is jealous for me. His love's like a hurricane and I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. Now I always passively sang that song until I understood that God's jealousy means that he loves all of me. He desires a deep, lasting, trusting relationship with me. Now, do you relate to any of my scenarios? Number one, I walk away from God when things get bad or good. I isolate myself and I forget to glorify him. Now, number two, I would rather seek love and approval from other people, like friends, authority, and family instead of him. Number three, I hate being in my own skin. I'm so insecure of my face, my body, my voice, my weight, even my talent. And I sang up here today. <laughs> and I don't love myself the way that God does. Now, lastly, I think I am worthless and not good enough, and no one will ever love me. Well, Jesus gets jealous when I walk away from him and run to other things or people. He gets jealous when I let myself think that I am worthless or ugly, when I honor others instead of him, when I use my gifts for other things instead of him, and when I treat myself with no respect at all, or when I shame and hate myself. Now, you can answer yes or no. For the parents in the room, would you die for your children? Yes. Everyone else, would you suffer for those that you love and care about? Now, God is jealous, and he intensely loves me to the point where he died on the cross for me. He gave his life so I can have mine. He got tortured. He got shamed. He got humiliated. He also bled. He must have cried a lot from all the pain that I've caused him. He was ridiculed and mocked. He had scars on his hands, his feet, and his side. But I didn't get to experience that pain. I did not get to walk on a shameful path of humiliation while carrying my own heavy cross. I did not get cursed at. I didn't get condemned. I don't have scars on my hand, my feet, or my side. Now, whenever I think about this, my heart is so humbled for the Lord. So I give my life to him. I am now his and he is mine. And there is no fear in this love because he already gave his all to show me that he means it. He's not ashamed or embarrassed of me. He does not keep record of my wrongs and he sees me for who I am. He never lets me doubt if he actually loves me or not. And he looks at me and he feels proud. He is so in love with me. I am his bride and he is my groom. We are his portion and he is our prize. He just wants to be close to you. His heart burns for you in a way you nor I can't even fathom. This is God's passionate and healthy jealousy for us. Now he wants to see you and have your salvation in him so that when you die one day, we'll get to reap our prize and see and experience him face to face in heaven because he loves you and me so much. All he wants from us is our pure devotion to him. Now, I want to encourage you today to accept him in your heart and to live your life for him with all the gifts and talents that you can offer. He just wants to know you again and love you because you are his child. And there was, is, and will be no greater love than this. So don't hide from him anymore. Anyways, hi, I'm Cassie and Jesus, my creator, loves and is jealous for me. Okay, who is excited about their salvation? 
Okay, so everyone, awesome. So that's not always the case, right? Over time, it's entirely possible for many Christians to lose the excitement about their faith and their salvation. As someone who's grown up in a Christian home, there have been times in the past where I have taken my salvation for granted. Recently, I've noticed many new Christians that are on fire for God, and it is so clear to see that they still have that excitement about their salvation. Psalm 51.12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In this passage, King David is praying for forgiveness and asking God to restore the excitement of his salvation. He's also asking for a willing and submissive spirit so that he's able to answer and obey what the Lord has asked him to do. His sin and guilt could be one of the major reasons that his joy faded. After committing adultery and having that woman's husband killed, David was still called a man after God's own heart. Like David, many of us have sinned and feel guilty, but God is faithful to restore and forgive when we ask, regardless of how bad our sins are. Over time, the excitement of anything can fade away. If it's not new and different anymore, we become less excited about it. Recently, I bought my daughter, Madeline, a doll. She rocked it the whole time we were in the store and absolutely loved it. The next day, Dolly was left out in the pouring rain. So... She just, the excitement was gone, just like that. She did not treasure the gift that I gave her. As Christians, we need to think about God's salvation completely differently. Salvation is not just a gift, it is a treasure. And we need to treat it like that. Uh, Something that recently reignited the fire in me about my salvation is going through Freedom Group last fall. Freedom Group is amazing. It's very challenging. Um, I learned so many things, but the main takeaway was that I am saved and set free from the bondage of sin. As Christ followers, we can rejoice and know that that our names are recorded in heaven. We are no longer separated from God. We have been adopted into God's family. We are his sons and daughters. Christ died for our past, present, and future sins. Come on, like it is mind-blowing. God's love for us is incomprehensible. Romans 10.9 says that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like, it's at that time that you're saved because of God's sacrifice, not by any good works that we have done. So we've done absolutely nothing to earn this, and we don't deserve it. So how can we not get excited about God's salvation? Why does it matter that we're excited about God's salvation and actually treat it like a real treasure? When we're excited about God's salvation, it gives us a stronger desire to learn and grow deeper in our faith. We're also much more likely to share this incredible gift with the world around us. If you're not excited or happy about something, then it's much more harder. It's so much harder to actually invest your time and energy into it. So how do we restore the joy of our salvation? First of all, you're never doing this alone. As believers, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us to guide us. So just like David, we need to ask God. God is going to do it through us, but he is not going to do it for us. So when we seek God, the Holy Spirit is going to convict us. He is going to help us become more Christ-like, empower us to get out of our comfort zones. Draw us closer to other believers. Give us a deep desire to worship him and be in fellowship with him. 
So a couple practical ways that we can do this on a regular basis, just daily things that I'm sure a lot of us have heard many times. Confess our sins regularly. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive, just like that. And he remembers it no more. We do. He doesn't. It's gone. Talk to Jesus every day. We talk about this all the time. Pray. Talk to God. Make it an ongoing conversation from the moment you start your day. Attend church regularly to learn, worship, and be in fellowship with other believers. But ask Amber. You can also add seven years onto your life if you attend church regularly. (laughs) Seriously, I'm adding years onto my life. Get involved. For example, join the dream team and sign up for a connect group. Our next semester is just starting. Um, And this leads me into the next one. Find your people. We all need good friends that are going to uplift us and challenge us from a spiritual and godly perspective. I found my best friend in a connect group. When David's sin was weighing him down, he had lost the excitement about God's salvation, but he prayed and asked God for forgiveness. God forgave him. We can do the same when we are feeling disconnected from God or when the joy is starting to fade because of our own sin and guilt. He is ready and waiting for us to come to him. We simply need to ask. We need to get fired up and remember what is God's salvation. It is not just a gift. It is a treasure. Hello, guys. For my quick five minutes, I'd like to share something I found particularly interesting and cool about what has become one of my favorite books in the Bible in Ecclesiastes. If you've read Ecclesiastes or have been around conversations about the book, um, you would know that Ecclesiastes reads very depressing, as it essentially boils down to existential dread. So the fact I've decided to choose Ecclesiastes as my five for five topic is probably very telling of who I am. I'm kidding. Or am I? Anyways, I've grown to appreciate how along with the gospel, the wisdom behind Ecclesiastes grows more relevant and relatable each passing year in my young life. Life today can sometimes feel like a blur where virality, trends, tragedy, and technology seem to define and bookmark the chapters of our day-to-day life. A real example of that in my life right now is when the group chats, invites, and social media content are booming for this upcoming fantasy football season, all shooting at me in the short span of a week, only to fall out of obscurity, and nobody really cares about that. Life goes by and humanity is left wondering, what's the point? What's the point of all of this? An age-old tale and another indication that there is nothing new under the sun. In school, I've been learning about the effects of depression, anger, and anxiety, and overall nihilism that has actually increased in my generation and the generations to come. So when diving into the book, an intriguing thought of how to actually read Ecclesiastes to discern and understand the Lord's message became important to me. And it's because of this, voice. Voice is such an important aspect of reading our Bibles. When I was a kid, I often read the Bible, or any book for that matter, in an extremely animated or cliche voice to spice things up. For example, God sounding like a combination of Morgan Freeman and Optimus Prime. (laughs) Just read this passage from the beginning of the book in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. When reading this, obviously this is an extremely passionate statement by Solomon, but just as most other verses in the Bible, there's always more behind what we simply see. Let me read this next section in a different life, or in a different light. 
What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. The, the ear is fill, never has its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. Nothing is new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. To me, this idea of the way a message is perceived through something like voice resonated so much with my understanding of the ever-increasing depressive climate of these days, something I know all too well. Ecclesiastes, to me, seems to be a commonly misunderstood book under this guise of being dark, demoralizing, or devoid of hope. And I believe it may have something to do with that innate voice that Ecclesiastes brings out of the reader for the first few reads. This voice can almost reaffirm the suffering and perceived pointlessness of our world today. And through that, we may miss or overlook the importance of this book. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes, sorry. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes offers one the opportunity to understand the emptiness and despair that those who do not know God grapple with a day-to-day basis. Those who do not have a saving faith in Christ are faced with a life that will ultimately end and become irrelevant. If there is no salvation and no God, then not only is there no point to life, but no purpose or direction to it either. The world under the sun, apart from God, is frustrating. It is cruel. It is unfair. It is brief. And it is utterly meaningless. But with Christ, life is but a shadow of the glories to come in a heaven that is only accessible through him. So consider this, diving into Ecclesiastes for your next study, or if you haven't this year, read Ecclesiastes like it's that cool uncle, uncle, brother, or cousin who's been through it all and is providing simple wisdom on simply how life is and how frightening life is without Jesus Christ in it. So I worry. I worry when things are going great. I worry when they're going not so great. I worry about my family. I worry about my business. I worry about my children. I just worry. Is there anyone else in here who sometimes finds themselves worrying? Thank you. I see you. As the Holy Spirit has been working on me about worrying, I found the story of Daniel. And in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had just had a dream. and He had summoned all the wise men in Babylon. He had asked them to tell him all about his dream. And no one was able to do so. So in great anger, the king commanded all the wise men be put to death. When Daniel heard this, he rushed to the king and he said, Will you give me more time? And the king did. So Daniel went and he prayed. And that night, God supplied an answer. So in the morning, Daniel took the answer to the king, and the king was overjoyed. So he spared the lives of the wise men. He proclaimed that Daniel's God was the greatest of all gods, which we already know. Um, And then he made Daniel the chief over the province of Babylon. 
Usually when we read the story of Daniel or we hear it, we think that Daniel was a young man so favored by God that even the king favored him. What we don't hear is that Daniel was living possibly the worst reality anyone could be living. So Daniel is related to King David of the Bible. And at that time, he'd been carried into captivity from his home in Jerusalem, uh, in Judea. And he'd seen his friends, his family, his neighbors killed in the attack. And then he himself was taken as a captive. The only reason Daniel was alive was because the king thought it was cool to have people of royal birth as servants in his home. When I first um, read about the story of Daniel, I was wowed. Like, this is a guy that wasn't having a chilled life, right? Things weren't going well for him. And yet he trusted God and he prayed when things were not going so great and asked for an answer. So even in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was mentioned that when he first arrived in Babylon, he refused to eat any meat from the king because he thought it was unclean or it was unclean for him as a Jew. Instead, he chose a diet of vegetables and water. So I went to my favorite friend, Google, and I said, well, what's the distance between Jerusalem and Babylon? And he said, in Daniel's time, he would have had to walk 1,700 miles across the desert. I'm a foodie. Now, if I walked 1,700 miles anywhere, I would eat anything you put in front of me, but not Daniel. Daniel loved God and trusted God so much that he would rather eat vegetables and water than defile himself. And the more I started to study and just go deeper in the story of Daniel, I realized that we serve a God who is powerful, who loves us and cares about what happens to us, a God that gives answers, a God who is able to change circumstances overnight if he chooses to do so. So why do we lay awake worrying about things that he can change? In Jeremiah 17, 78, the Bible says, But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a river bank with roots that reach deep into the water. And such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruits. Isn't that wonderful? The more that I have been convinced that God is able to do anything that I can even imagine and much more, the more I am reminded that what does, you know, what does trusting God mean for me as a Christian or for us as Christians in this time? And it means not wavering. It means putting your faith in him and not changing your tune based on the circumstances because our God is able. And you don't have to conform to the society because our God can do anything. Maybe for you, it's about your finances and you need God to come through for you. Well, have you asked? I know that God has been speaking about trusting him to me. And he said to me that I am good enough to be the person he has called me to be in my business. I'm good enough. And he has great plans. But maybe for you, it's trusting God for your mortgage and knowing that he can supply the next payment. And maybe it's that decision that you need to make. Have you asked God and said, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I trust you to show me the right way. Or maybe it's just the prayer of surrender to say, Lord, I trust you with all the things that I worry about. Blessed are those that trust in the Lord. They are like trees planted by the riverside.
So I like to directly implicate myself as a Christian in everyday conversation with uh, people I know. So they'll ask like, hey, how's your day going? Or, hey, what are you excited about this week? Or what plans do you have for the weekend? And I typically respond with, oh man, I'm excited for church on Sunday. Or, uh, you know, I'm really excited to see my kids in Sunday school. And, uh, or, oh, there's a great uh, connect group coming up uh, on Thursday night that I can't wait to attend. So, uh And then this is typically followed by three different responses. The first response is happiness, joy, excitement. Congratulations, you just bumped into another Christian. You're going to have a great conversation, right? The next reaction is fear, anxiety, stress, maybe indifference, because they're just thinking in their head, please, please, please don't talk to me about Jesus. And then the last reaction you typically see are the questioners, the questioners. Now, uh, these people are going to ask and ask and ask questions. They're going to ask questions that make you feel uncomfortable. They'll ask questions that are actually going to make you question whether or not it was a good idea to be a Christian. But <laughs> my, my talk today is, is 1 Peter 3.15, and uh, it says, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, Always be ready to explain it. Now, I like to follow a question with another question, and I'll ask, hey, do you believe that Jesus is real and that he walked this earth? And unfortunately, some people say, well, Dave, I don't know. Or, nah, Jesus, he he isn't real, and that the Bible is a nice story, right? I've, I've heard that a couple times. Now, let's just put our history hats on. You know, I used to be a social studies teacher, so here we go. Back to class you go. Uh, we're going to put our history hats on, and we're going to analyze the Bible versus a well-known historical event, and we're going to compare the Bible to the Trojan War. Now, if we take a look at history, and historians do this all the time, you take a look at the time of the event, the historian who wrote about it, and then when you see the first manuscript. And the manuscript is just a copy of uh, the original document. And then how many manuscripts are important because you don't just copy anything, you copy important things, right? So with the Trojan War, Trojan War happened... Then 400 years later, a guy named Homer wrote the Iliad, which is a series of poems. And then 500 years after that, we see our first manuscripts. That's 900 years, right? And then to back that up, there's 600 documents or 600 manuscripts of the Iliad, which means it's pretty important this happened. And no classical scholar ever would question the validity of the Trojan War. Now let's compare that to the Bible, shall we? So if we take the Bible, there's the life of Christ, then, you know, his death, and then the disciples write New Testament documents. And then 200 years later, we see the first manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but 200 is a lot less than 900. And when it comes to the manuscripts, there's not 600. There is over 20,000 New Testament documents documents. That means the New Testament dunked on the Iliad. Like, and here's the thing. Guess what? The Bible isn't a story. It's our history. It's our history. Now, the other side of that conversation goes like this. Yes, Jesus is real, but he was just a good person. He's just a good moral teacher. Well, follow-up question. If Jesus is a good moral teacher, do good moral teachers lie? And the answer is typically 
No, no, a good moral teacher wouldn't lie. Well, John 14 comes along. He's having a conversation with his disciples. His disciples ask, hey, show us the Father. Let us see God. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, if I went up to my wife and said, you have seen me, you have seen God, right? Like there's laughter in the crowd. That's exactly how she reacted when I was practicing my lines for today. Uh, People would look at you like you're crazy, right? But the disciples took those words in and they believed and they followed and many of them died for that belief. So no, he's not just a good moral teacher. He's far, far more than that. Now, let me wrap this up. People are naturally curious. People are also naturally skeptical, right? But there's so many people out there who are lost and wandering and have misconceptions about Christianity because of the media out there, right? Now, in Matthew 22, Jesus is having another conversation. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now, but is your mind ready with the answers that they are seeking, Now, there's a lot of great resources out there, and I'll be in the lobby after. Come see me after. I'd love to share some of those those documents with you. But remember this. God put that person in your life to facilitate an introduction. Are you ready? Thank you. Oh, man. Let's make some noise for all of our Five for Five speakers. Wow. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. None of them volunteered. It's not like I got up here on a Sunday and I was like, who wants to do five for five and five hands shot up? And I was like, you, you, you. No, we went to them and they said, oh, no, not me. I'm not qualified. I'm not capable. I don't know if I have anything helpful to say. Well, guys, you proved yourself wrong today. That was amazing. Thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for sharing your perspective. I know your particular talk touched somebody here in the crowd. And I want to encourage you with this. If there was something that was said and it really did find a home inside of your heart, would you let them know that? Maybe out in the lobby, if you see them and you just go up to them and say, man, I really appreciated what you said there. That was just for me. I don't know if anybody else got anything out of it, but I needed to hear that. That'll go a long way towards reminding them that God uses us despite our imperfections, despite our flaws and our insecurities and inabilities, he uses us to accomplish his good ends.